If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Margaret Brown. In the last episode, we talked about Margaret's experience on the Titanic, how it opened the door for her to do more with her money and her time, and how her activist parents shaped the person she became. In this episode, we're going to talk about her attempted run for the Senate before women had the right to vote nationally. She tells us about her work with the juvenile courts that would prevent children from being treated like thieves and murderers because they were hungry. And by the end of this, you'll know exactly what kind of person she was. She was the best kind. It seems like you and JJ had a good relationship. Here you go looking for a man who is wealthy, and you find uh, a man that you love instead that just ends up being wealthy. It sounds like he was... I, I should tell you, we have been separated now for about 13 years. What went wrong where you and JJ weren't able to see eye to eye? Uh, several reasons. One was that my husband, like many of the people, believed that a woman's name should only be in the paper three times when she's born, when she's married, and when she died. So my name kept appearing in the paper for all these fundraisers that I was having, the causes I was supporting, and, and J.J. did not like that. That was part of our problem. He also had some, shall I put it this way, other interests. Oh, outside of business. Yes. That did not go over See, well that, Yeah, We have been separated many years at this point, but I still think very highly of him. We are still legally married, and I respect him highly. There's not a better man on earth than J.J. Brown. When you find J.J. and you fall in love with him because of the man he is, he had to know that you were outspoken when you got married. Was that a surprise to him that you were outspoken? I think as time wore on that as I grew older, I became more outspoken, more involved in things. So that was not quite the young girl that was working at a dry goods store that he first met in Leadville. I was not quite the same person. I did change and grow. Did the money change you? It enabled me to support some of these causes that I believed in so strongly, to be able to not have to work so hard to be able to support my family that I could use my energies in these causes. I had my children in boarding school, which was one reason I was able to attend the Carnegie School when it first opened there in New York City and able to travel so extensively too. Money afforded me that. One of my favorite quotes is that money doesn't make people evil, it makes them more of who they are. And sometimes when somebody gets some money, you find out who they really are because they don't have to spend every minute trying to make enough money to pay their bills and have bread on the table and so forth. And it just, it revealed the person that you probably were all along, this person that cared about the world as your parents did. I was under the impression that J.J. bought the mine and owned the mine, but he never owned the mine. He just added the genius to a strategy of getting to the gold. The Ibex Mining Corporation was where he struck gold. And he was not the owner. He was on the board, but he was not the owner. 
He did have other minds later on. He was quite the genius, very good at geology. But that was not at the time that we were actively together. Were there any times where you had attempted to get back together? We actually did. After I found out about how he was being sued for alienation of affection, we took on a trip to go around the world. And we were gone for two years. We went to India, Japan, many places in between. And unfortunately, that did not patch up our differences. What is being sued for alienation of affection? Is that a crime? Yes. Can you tell me anything about that? (laughs) Well, the suit said that he had taken the affection away from the husband of the wife, and she had left her husband with her child to be with J.J. So the world tour did not save the marriage, fortunately. We are still legally married, though. I'm a good Catholic. I would never divorce. Oh, you are still legally married? Yes. You stayed married. I didn't know that. Yeah, we are married legally. Now, the money clearly changed and gave you more options of what you were going to spend your time on. And I'm wondering how your life changed after Titanic. Because you were looking out for people before that. You were looking out for people during and after that. Did you see a big shift in the person that you were before and after that event? I would say my stage got bigger. Before that, I was known in the Denver area, like I I mentioned earlier, how I raised funds for Judge Ben Lindsay, helping him to establish the first juvenile court system in the whole United States. So that was something that was local. But after the Titanic, when I became known as the unthinkable Margaret or Mrs. J. Brown, it opened up doors for me to be able to do things such as in Ludlow and during the Great War to travel to France and to work for the devastated France, to get it back on its feet, to help organize ambulances and to have Mark Twain's work translated into Braille for the men that were affected by mustard gas that were blinded by that. So it opened up doors of opportunities for me to do things. I've had my name thrown in the ring in 1914 also to run for U.S. Senate. But that was at the time that the Great War was starting. And my sister, being married to a German baron, did not bode well. So I didn't actually officially file the paperwork, and I withdrew from that race. Okay, that was—now I think you're just messing with me. That is a long list of things that you're involved in. First of all, you ran for Senate, and women didn't even get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment, which was 1920. So you ran, or you were going to run for the Senate before women could even vote? Is that correct? Before they could vote nationally. But in Colorado, women had had the vote since 1893. Oh, I see. You know what? I I knew that, too, because I think Montana, I think, was a few years before. I think they were like 1910 or something. Colorado was the first. Colorado was the first. 1893. Yes. For white women to be able to vote. But before it's an amendment, you're running for the Senate, though. Yes. I was encouraged by those women at that conference for great women. And Judge Ben Lindsay, he was one of my supporters as well. So I had backing. I had people that were encouraging me to run. In fact, it looked like I could have won until the war. 
And like I said, having a sister married to a German, uh, that was not popular. Yeah, so that I decided. Popular. Yeah. So when you're talking about this Judge Ben Lindsay and he creates the first juvenile court, what was happening prior to that? If kids were stealing a pack of gum, they had to go to prison for 20 years? Yes. In fact, he had sentenced two boys to jail because they had stolen bread for their starving family. And he started feeling pretty guilty about that. So he went into the jail to check on these boys and found out that they were in cells with hardened criminals, with murderers, with rapists. And he thought, this is not rehabilitating them. That is just them, how to become criminals themselves. So he came to me and he said, we have to change this. We have to make a better way. And so we came up with this idea of having a boys camp where these boys could go into the great outdoors and they could work and learn how to take care of nature. They would learn about teamwork, about responsibility, about working the sweat of their brow for the rewards of their labors. And so I started raising funds. I even jumped claim on a deserted mine in Cripple Creek that helped fund this camp for two years. And so those are the kind of things that I did. And this was a model then for the juvenile justice system he developed there. That's probably one of my proudest things that I've done with my life. What a fantastic accomplishment for kids stealing bread because they're hungry not to be spending the rest of their life with murderers teaching them how to murder. That's gigantic. I I'm surprised that you would have to fund that, though. Why would that not be funded by the government? Because it wasn't. It had never been done. So we had to do it ourselves. That makes sense. So back to Denver for a minute, okay? So you're in Leadville, and you he strikes gold, the hay bales, and the timbers so they can go deeper, and then you guys go to Denver. Is Denver a dump? Is this place an awful place to live, or is it a beautiful city? Compared to Leadville, <laughs> it was gigantic and beautiful. There was a lot of culture there. We'd go to the theater. We'd see Sarah Bernhardt performing. I was able to get involved in a lot of things there, a lot of causes, as I told you, to take private lessons in piano and singing and acting. So I was able to be involved in a lot more things there. You mentioned acting. Is this something that you do? You, you play guitar, obviously, but is acting something that you participate in? I love acting. When I went to the Carnegie School, that was one of the things that I studied in New York City, literature, language, and drama. And I hope someday to be able to act just like Sarah Bernhardt did. She's one of my role models. Have you met her? I did when she came to Denver. So they say when you meet the person that you're idolizing, a lot of times it's a letdown. That wasn't the case with Sarah Bernhardt? Not at all. Not at all. I will remember it forever. Speaking of artists, I think that you'd rattled this off with three or four different things, and I'm, I, I'm not even sure I heard this right. Did you say that you had translated Mark Twain's books into Braille? I did not personally translate them. No, I paid for it to be done. And I've done lectures on that, too, as well, on Mark Twain. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Mark Twain, because Mark Twain obviously has a connection to Hannibal as well, where you were born. Did you meet Mark Twain? No, I never met him, but yes, we both grew up Samuel Clemens in Hannibal, Missouri, so that's my connection to him. During the Great War, when these young men were hit with this mustard gas, 
it it wreaked havoc on their bodies and one of the things that it did was to cause blindness so you had in these hospitals that i volunteered with in france many of the were blind and so i wanted to make sure that they had some way of being able to be entertained and rehabilitated and learning to read braille was very important so that's one of the reasons i did it also, one of the things I did was thought that they needed to have entertainment. So I raised funds from my friends back in the United States who had lots of money, the wealthy. And I went back there from France and I gathered up a troupe of actors and comedians and dancers and jugglers and brought them back crossing the ocean when the U-boats were torpedoing ships to come to entertain these soldiers. It just seems like it never ends. I feel like there's a second person, like you have a twin sister and you're both working together. I don't know how you manage your time or even think about these things. When you think about the Great War that happened, and that's, what, what is the date in, in your time, by the way? 1922. So it's 10 years after the Titanic sank, April 15th, to be exact. Oh, okay, so we're exactly 10 years after the Titanic, and yes. so the Great War is over, because that ended in 1918, and yes. by the and way, I you... stayed on in France. And you stayed in France, okay, and did your sister, did she stay with the German? Yes, they're still married. So what was your involvement with the Great War? I mean, I can't even imagine what the world looked like at that time. How were you involved? I offered my little cottage there in Newport to be used for the Red Cross. They used it as a like a headquarters. And then I went to France where I helped organize the ambulances and I translated and I sometimes even drove the ambulances, but I helped organize the hospitals. You actually drove ambulances sometimes? On occasion when necessary, but mainly I was overseeing things and organizing them. So you've mentioned your skills as an organizer many times and also fundraising. I'm curious what it is about you that makes you good at fundraising. Why do people want to give you money? Probably because I won't take no for an answer. If I feel that something needs to be done, I don't sit back and let someone else do it. I do it myself. I go full speed ahead. When you were talking about the Great War and you were talking about the mustard gas, did you have any family members that were in the war that were affected by that? My son Larry was in the war, and he was over there in France serving in the Army, but he was not affected by mustard gas, thankfully. Okay, he was serving. Obviously, he survived it, I'm guessing. Yes. That's fortunate. Tell me about, so you're in France right now. Tell me what you're doing in France and what your plans are. I travel back and forth between the United States and France to go see my nieces, who I also raised, and my children and my grandchildren. And I go to Newport sometimes and to Denver or New York City. So I'm not always in France, but I'm continuing to help them to recover from the war as well as studying. I'm studying acting, and I hope to take to the stage here in France in the near future. So I'm helping them to get back on their feet, whatever is needed to help these people to recover. How bad are things there? They're pretty bad. France was hit pretty hard, and there are a lot of children 
who don't have parents that are orphaned, women who are widowed, just like on the Titanic, people who are in need, who have lost so many things. So now that if it's 1922, the, the 19th Amendment has been passed two years ago, and now women have the right to vote. Prior to that, you were very involved in the passing of the 19th Amendment or getting to a point where that would pass, from my understanding. Tell me why you think it's so important that women should have the right to vote. I was the representative at many of those suffrage conferences for the state of Colorado. So I did feel like, yes, I had my hand in things. But during much of that later activity around the time that the 19th Amendment was being passed, I was not in the country. So I didn't have a a big hand in it there at the end. Why I think it is so important, because I think every person matters, whether you're a man or a woman. I believe in equal rights, and, and I've urged the passage of the Equal Rights Amendment, that men and women should be on the same footage. And that included on the Titanic. There were women who did not want to get in those lifeboats. And I don't think they should have been forced to do that, that they should have been able to stay on the ship with their husbands or the husbands should have been able to get on the lifeboats. I don't believe in that old adage, women and children first. I believe everyone should have been treated equally. I think that women bring more compassion to politics because they understand families. They understand and have more empathy than man ever would. And that is one of the reasons I ran, because I thought that a woman would know the heart of it, the human side of things. This empathy that you have for people, I think back to when you were working in a tobacco shop, and I picture you with not a lot of money, young, born of Irish immigrants. I don't know how young you were working in this tobacco shop, but... I'm guessing I started working when I was 13, 13 years. And it was a a factory, the back of factory. So what would you do in in a building like that? I stripped off the tobacco leaves. And are you working the kind of hours that a a, like a a full grown adult would work? I was a manual laborer. Yes. There were no child labor laws. There still are no child labor laws. So children work all sorts of conditions, all sorts of hours. But at 13, I was considered an adult pretty much. And did you get a paycheck like a 25-year-old man would get? Yes. I got money, not a whole lot, but what I got, I turned over to my parents. It went to help run our household. Is that something that you hated? I didn't particularly like the work, but I appreciated having money to be able to help my family. However, I knew that I would never get ahead in life and I would never be in the position to be able to do for my father like I wanted to do. And that is one of the reasons why I left to go out west. My brother Daniel had already gone to Leadville, so I joined him in Leadville, as I told you, seeking that ring of gold. Do you think that is appropriate for a woman to be looking for a man who is wealthy instead of love? Because it seems to me as I listen to you, you care about people, you love people. It it doesn't feel natural to me that you would be looking for a man that was wealthy instead of a man that you loved. At that point in my life, because I had lived with nothing pretty much, 
that was what my goal in life was. I wanted to be able to have something instead of nothing, to be able to take care of my parents, my family. But when it came to that time when I had to make that decision to choose a poor man or hold out for a rich man, I chose the man I loved who was poor. Yeah, it makes sense, even though... And I'm sure all women at that time, I mean, all men, if they didn't have money, they would love to marry a rich woman if there, were, if there was one available. I mean, there's no reason for a life to be harder than it needs to be. But nonetheless, yeah, you, you, you did settle for love. Let, let me talk about language for a second. You speak several different languages. In between you working in a tobacco farm and all of this, where did you have time to learn languages? Because I'm assuming that was when you were younger, right? No, not at all. That was after we got money and I was able to afford to hire tutors. And of course, in our travels, we were in a lot of cultures and I pick up language pretty easily. So I speak fluent French. I speak Italian, German, some Russian. Obviously, I speak English. And from my parents, I heard a little bit of Gaelic, too. So I picked up a little bit of that. That's a hard language. Yes. That's a very challenging language. How do you feel about the nicknames that people have given you? I've heard you've been called the heroine of the Titanic and, of course, the unsinkable Mrs. Brown. How do you feel about those nicknames? Oh, I tell you, when I first heard them calling me the heroine of the Titanic, I just, they were talking about making a bronze medal and giving it to me. I was overwhelmed that they should do such a thing. As I told you, I only felt I did what anybody else would have done in my position and I truly wish I could have done more to save even more lives. And unthinkable, there are a couple of things that, how that name came about. I heard that when my husband, JJ, was told that I was not among those who had drowned that day on the Titanic, that he said, oh, that Margaret, she's too mean to sink. Now, I'm not sure that's totally true that he said that. Remember, we had been separated for several years at this time. But Polly Pry, the, the Denver columnist in the newspaper, she said something in her column about how I was unsinkable. So I think between maybe both of them or one of them, that's how that term stuck. And they started calling me the unsinkable Mrs. J.J. Brown. I want you to think back for a minute when you were negotiating with Rockefeller in Ludlow. I'm noticing a connection between something. Back at that time when miners didn't have any rights at all, they would go into the mine and they would work really long hours, breathing in whatever they were digging, and probably come out all covered in soot. And I'm guessing that was a really dangerous job where those people maybe didn't have a really long life expectancy. And when a miner died, what would happen to his family? If there was no worker, they couldn't live in the company house, so they were put out. And it was literally just like the Titanic. So you've got situations where men are in a very different environment. And if the men dies and there's no breadwinner, then you've got a woman and possibly some children that cannot easily support themselves. And at that moment, you rose to that challenge and said, I have to be there for those people. And at the Titanic, it was the same thing. Women and children first. And so many of the men died, leaving the women without any means. And then you jump in and save those people there. And then in the war, it's the exact same situation where you've got a lot of men dying and a lot of women and children left with 
without a way to take care of themselves. And it seems like this cause goes from one part of your life to the next where your cause is just to help those that can no longer help themselves. That's my arc, as an astrologist would say. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you believe in astrology? I do. In fact, when I was in Egypt, before I got on the Titanic and before I even knew about it, I had gone to an, a, a palm reader and asked them to read my palm. And this palm reader looked at my hand and eyes got big and wide open and they said, water, water, water. And of course I thought, oh, they know that every American who's here has to come by ship. So that's why they were doing it. I just took it as a joke though. I didn't take it seriously. Obviously that became true. And one of the last things that I grabbed before I got off the Titanic was that little talisman, that little icon, the idol from Egypt that I stuck in my pocket. So, yes, I have some belief in astrology, in, in luck, although I am a, a, con, a confirmed Irish Catholic. That is a pretty accurate reading for somebody to be screaming water and then you have that kind of event. Do you talk with those people now? Do you speak with palm readers now from time to time? No, I don't have the time to do that. And I haven't been back in Egypt for a long time. JJ and I were there on our trip around the world, but I've got other things to do to worry about. Yeah. When you got off the Titanic and some time had passed, was it difficult for you to get on a boat again? There was no other way to get home. To go to almost anywhere outside of the United States, you had to go by ship. So, yes, I've traveled by ship many times since then. Even, like I said, in the midst of the Great War, when the, the U-boats were torpedoing the ships coming across. I can't even imagine sailing across the ocean not knowing whether or not a U-boat is underneath me. I did travel in the Lusitania, but it was not on that fateful trip that it had. Oh, my gosh, jeez. <laughs> okay, so... Your reputation with uh, women versus men, how would you say that men see you compared to how women see you? Oh, boy. It depends upon the man. If they are a strong man who has good self-esteem and are not threatened by women, I have absolutely no problem with them like Judge Benton Lindsay. We're great friends. But then there are other men who do take issue with my outspoken ways, such as my husband. And so I have different interactions with men, but it's more on their part than on mine. It seems like fashion was a really important part of your life. It seemed like you were on the cutting edge of that. I'm assuming this is something you did intentionally. Was there a reason behind it? Oh, I love fashion. And with having money, then I was able to get the latest. Remember I told you about the reporter. Polly Pry. Mm -hmm. She remarked quite often in her column about how I was dressed. Sometimes I would have on all yellow and I would come in looking like a fashion plate and she would remark about this very snidely. And then I had one of my friends that said, you know, it is not proper for a lady to wear diamonds during the daytime. And I said, you are exactly right. I thought the same until I got some. Then it's always okay to wear diamonds. That's right. You wear what you want to wear. If you think it's something right, then you should do it. You know, there's a lot of people that 
will get rich. And then you hear stories about how it, it doesn't fill them up and they are still longing for companionship or they're longing for purpose. It doesn't appear that you had that same reaction to money. That it was just the opposite. It was like now everything's on the table. Is that how you yes, feel about exactly. it? I do. I like I said, I believe that the money opened doors for me. It allowed me to do things that I had always wanted to do, taking care of my father and my family, education for my children, traveling, helping out the less fortunate. God has truly blessed me. He has given me a good life. And I don't know how to live life any other way than by doing what I'm doing. It is absolutely clear that you care deeply about the people of the world, almost as if they were all brothers or sisters of yours. How do you feel about the the way that the environment is being treated by man? Do you, is this something that you're tackling at some point in your life? The mines were so much about taking, taking from the earth and taking from the miners. Many of them lost their lives. They lost their health. And that's one of JJ's problems, too. Breathing in that air, being bent over in the mines, it ruined his health. That has affected his temper. So I believe that we need to give back when we're takers. We need to become givers when we are in that position. Is there something specifically that you think should be done in that case? I think they should be given a fair wage. Those things that those Ludlow miners were striking for, being able to unionize, being able to have um, minimum wage and a maximum work hours, I believe those things all should be put in place. As I told John Rockefeller, we need to take care of each other as though they are our brothers, just like the Bible taught. Everybody should have a decent roof over their head. They shouldn't be put out if they no longer are productive or if their husband dies. I think all of that is very wrong. So let's talk about motherhood for a second. So you have children, correct? Yes. I have two children, plus I raised my three nieces. So and... Helen is my oldest, and she is now married. Right. And then my son Larry, who is also married, he's the one that had the son, the, my first grandchild, that was ill, and so we, I, I boarded the Titanic to come back to the United States. Larry's yeah. in the war, and then Helen was the one that, that fortunately didn't get on the ship. I'm wondering, as you are taking on the world and all of its challenges, how were you affected by being a mother? I mean, did that make it more difficult, or did that give you more empathy? What was that experience? I had a good mother, a mother who loved us and took care of us, worked very hard, so I had a good example. I felt that having the money afforded me to give them a better education, and the best education they could get was at the boarding schools. So that was one of the things that I did. They were in several different boarding schools and getting the best education. My nieces, meanwhile, when my, my brother's wife died, I took them in to raise them. I was able to afford for them to have dancing lessons and to have good educations as well. So I'm very thankful that I was able to have that opportunity. I'm very close to my nieces. They are like daughters to me. I care for them very deeply. You'd mentioned a while back ago, John Astor, and that he was a friend of the family. What kind of person was he? What kind of relationship did you have? 
we weren't real close. And even with John D. Rockefeller, they were all within my social circle. I can't say that we were bosom buddies or anything like that. But we did travel together. And he had recently divorced his wife of many years and married Madeline, who was about the age of my son, so a much younger woman. And there was a lot of gossip, a lot of people who shunned her, shunned him because of this. But I found her to be a delightful young lady. And I I very much enjoyed their company. We were great traveling companions. And he was a gentleman to the end. What are you working on right now? I know you said you're hoping to spend some time on the stage. What are your future goals? That is it. I hope to take to the stage. I've been studying Sarah Bernhardt, her roles that she has been performing, her acting style, as well as volunteering here in France to help with the devastated France to recover, going back, seeing my family, traveling back and forth to the United States. But yes, in the future, that's what I hope to do is to pursue more acting. I am so thankful for all of that you have accomplished and everything that you've given to the world because it is so much. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And I'm, I guess I'm going to ask you just one more question and then I'd be happy to hear anything you'd like to add. And that is, if you were going to give advice to future generations, I mean, based on your life experiences, what kind of advice would you offer future generations about activism, about making a lasting impact, resilience? What would you say? Especially to young women. Don't let being a woman hold you back. That if you believe something is right, you should do it. I'm a daughter of adventure. Now, this means I never experience a dull moment, and I never know when I may go out up in an airplane and come down with a crash or, or, or go motoring and climb a pole or go off for a walk in the twilight and, and, and return all must up in an ambulance. As I said, that's my arc. That's what the astrologers would say. And I believe it's a good one for a person who had rather make a snap out than a fade out in life. So go pursue what you feel is right. Do for others care for your neighbors, treat them as your brother. It's all we have is each other, and it is our responsibility as children of God to care for the other people around us, to do the best we can with the resources we have. I don't think you could have said that any better. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, other than the fact that I feel that I've been blessed. I've had a good life, and I Hope to continue to do more good in the time that God gives to me. There's no doubt that you have been blessed, but the blessings that you have passed along have been 10, 20, 100 times anything that you received. You certainly gave more than you ever took. And I thank you again for who you are, and I thank you so much for your time. I thank you, and I so appreciate your kind words. The story of Margaret Brown begins with her parents working on the Underground Railroad and fighting for the rights of Irish people. These qualities and an exceptional work ethic were instilled in Margaret at a young age. Put it all together, sprinkle a little money on it, and you get Mother Teresa wearing a $1,000 hat. After making a fortune, she could have just bought her fancy clothes and traveled around going to dinner parties, and she certainly did all of that. But she also understood that once she had enough, she would have to give more than she would take. Before leaving the Carpathia, the ship that saved them, 
she made sure that everyone had a place to go. When the miners were left with no representation, she attempted to stand up to John Rockefeller. And when World War I had left people across the globe without means or without family, she got onto another ship and went over to help. When I listen to the story of Margaret Brown, I hear the story of a life fully lived, as she gave her heart and her soul to her passions, to her community, and to the people that otherwise would have been forgotten. At the age of 65, she died peacefully in her sleep at the Barbizon Hotel in New York. Thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe now. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm Esther.